Well, good morning. No. Okay. All right. Well, hang in there. Hang in there. Uh, I'm going to get you going here in just a minute. If you're in Kidmo, you can head on out. If you're a guest and you have a second through fifth grader, then uh, you can walk out and see where they're headed. They have their own time of games, teaching small groups, and in uh, a fun room back there. You can go see where they're at while we're here together. I've got some things I want to share with you, but before we do that, I just want to draw attention to a couple of things. One is uh, we're so excited to have Melissa back on uh, stage leading in worship, and uh, let's tell her how much we appreciate her. And also, we have a very nervous person up in the booth. Toby Como is uh, doing our slides today. Let's thank him for his service today. And listen... When you get involved in some of this stuff, it's a little nerve-wracking because everybody's watching and pay attention, but they're doing a great job, and we're so thankful. We're, just, we're blessed as a church to have them. We're blessed as a church to have you, and I'm excited for what God is doing um, in our midst. I do encourage you to be involved in uh, our fall festival, our car meet, and block party that we're going to be having. So if you can bring some candy next week, that will be great. Other people will be bringing candy, and we look to have a really great turnout and a lot of fun together. Today we're going to be on part three of our series called Shadow Mission. We're going to finish up next week. Um, I've got several things I want to share with you today. And, you know, there are certain sermons that I put together and I know exactly every word I want to say. And there are some that I, I know generally what I want to say. I'm a little afraid of what else I will say. This is one of those days. So you'll want to stay awake to see what comes out of my mouth. Um, I've got a few things on my mind, and some of them fit the sermon. Some of them I just have to get off my mind regardless. And so I want to share those with you. They are pertinent to what we're talking about. And just to give you a quick recap to put us all back on the same page, and if this is your first time with us, we're thankful that you have chosen to be with us today and hope that you'll choose to come back and be with us again. So far, the things we've talked about in Shadow Mission is, number one, you have a mission. You have a mission. You were created with a mission in tow. In fact, part of our mission was given to us from Jesus 2,000 years ago, and that mission has never changed. You have a mission. That mission very much is embodied in the good news and the sharing of the good news and making disciples of others. Now, making disciples does not mean we make them church members. Disciples does not mean we get them to come to our worship services and every other event that we have. A disciple means that they are on their own motivated to follow Christ. And we as a community come together and help that process. Discipleship is not a Bible study. Bible study is the lifeblood of any relationship with Christ. You cannot have a relationship with Christ if there is not intentional Bible study in your life. So Bible study is not necessarily discipleship. It's a piece of it. But discipleship is the process of learning and intentionally following Christ every day. That is the goal of discipleship. We are following him. You have a mission. Every one of you in this room has a mission. And what we find over and over is that people believe, well, I'm not gifted in a way for it to be an effective mission. Or God is not going to entrust me with a really important mission because he's going to entrust that to other better Christians. And so my mission may be to support somebody else, but God would not really ask me to do something fundamentally important, which is not true. 
Every person's mission in this world is vitally important. And whether you recognize it or not, your mission fits in with all of the people around you for God's overall purpose in the world. You have a mission. And what we know and what many of us succumb to in our lives and what the church throughout the last 2,000 years has succumbed to time and time again is that we somehow move a little off of the vision just enough that it sends us somewhere else. We're calling that our shadow mission. This is not an idea I came up with. This is something that's been talked about by many others. It was put in a book by John Ortberg called Overcoming Your Shadow Mission. And I'm sharing with you some pieces of the book, but a lot of it's not in the book. If you want to go deeper in the concept of shadow mission, it's a great book for you to pick up. It's out of print. You can get it on Kindle or Audible or some uh, probably buy one off eBay or something. But the idea of a mission is crucial With that, you will be tempted to accept your shadow mission instead. Every one of you are going to deal with this this temptation. I deal with it. And it's not something that you deal with once. It's something that you struggle with your entire life because you are constantly being pulled in a direction to go off mission. You all are going to be tempted with that. It's always tempting. It will always test our character And it is most likely always going to involve your gifting, which means you will naturally gravitate towards the things that you are good at. But rather than using them for the purpose that God wanted you to, to use them for some other purpose, usually for your own benefit. So as we go through this today, I want to share with you a lot about shadow mission and the consequences of following our mission or falling prey to our shadow mission. What I believe in kind of the, the main idea that, I, that I'm basing all this on today is that our shadow mission would not be near as tempting if we could see its ultimate results. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever made a decision you were absolutely positive was the right decision only down the road to realize it was a flawed decision? Has anyone ever done that? And had you been able to see the results of that decision down here, you never would have gone down that road. Anybody else? I think we would all do that. In fact, wouldn't it be great if we could just see all of the consequences of all of the decisions that we would make? And if we could, we would only make the decisions that take us to the desired consequences. It's one of the reasons we love video games. Because you can just start over, right, and do it again. And if you are on some kind of adventure game and you get to restart life after life and go back to a checkpoint, wouldn't it be great if we could do that with our lives? I didn't like how this one turned out. I think I'm just going to reset back to the last good point, and I'm going to try again. But that's not the way life works. Our shadow mission would not be as tempting if we could see its ultimate results. Now, as we look through possible shadow missions, there's an idea that floats around, I believe is absolutely true, that falls right into what we're talking about. It's the idea of the butterfly effect. Have you ever heard of the butterfly effect? The idea is that everything will cause an action or reaction around them. And even the smallest act can have huge ramifications that we may not even see. For the butterfly effect, the illustration that's most popular is that a butterfly can flap its wings in one part of the world... And that ripple that it creates could eventually build until you have a tornado in the other part of the world. That just a flapping of the wings. Now, could that really happen? I don't know. I'm not a weatherman. I don't know if that is possible. 
But we do see that, that in life, small decisions can lead to huge consequences. I want to tell you about one, one that you're familiar with. You may not know the whole story, but in 1907 and 1908, a young man wanted to be an artist, and he applied to the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna. He failed both of his entrance exams and was denied admittance for an art career. Some of his pictures I have that you can see, that's one of his paintings, second one. It's another one of his paintings, a third one. Now, before you go to the next picture, this person you know, had this person been accepted into the art school, would history have been different? Do you know who this person is? Next picture is Adolf Hitler. Twice Adolf Hitler, when he was younger, tried to get into art school and wanted to go on a career in art. Now, what would have happened had he made it in? It seems like an inconsequential decision. Yeah, he's just not quite good enough. I'm not sure he's ready. Would the people that were in the the decision of whether we should accept him or not, had they said, yes, you can come in, would it have kept the Third Reich from forming? Would it have stopped World War II? Would it have kept 60 million people being killed in that World War and 6 million Jews, over a third of all European Jews were killed in World War II through the Holocaust? Could all of that have been stopped if Adolf Hitler had simply not failed his entrance exam to art school? Now, we don't often want to think about things in those terms because it puts such a heavy burden on such a small, insignificant decision. We don't like to think that, you know, all of that mass genocide, all of the, the incredible carnage that we even feel today, all, none of that had to happen if one guy maybe had made it into art school. Now, we don't know. Maybe it still would have happened. Maybe somebody else would have done that. But the truth is, something changed his course of action at that point in his life. Malcolm Gladwell calls this the tipping point also talks about the butterfly effect. So what I want to share with you are a couple of stories from Scripture that have this exact same opportunity for massive change in the world, but it is all hinged on certain decisions that they have to make. And I also want to share with you what's happening right now in our world today that also demonstrates what happens when a shadow mission goes horribly wrong. First one I want to share with you is the story of Esther. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be starting in the book of Esther. We're going to be jumping around. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you have a phone, you can follow along on version. If you want to take notes, I have my notes on there. You can take additional notes, and you can keep those to study later if you'd like. As we begin this story of Esther, we don't have time to go through the whole book, nor do I want to go through the whole story of Esther, but I do want to highlight some of the key choices that were made along the way. But to understand that, if you're not familiar with the story of Esther, you need to understand a few things. Number one, there was a king in power. His name was Xerxes. That's what we call him. He's called as Ahasuerus in your, many of your scriptures, but he was known as King Xerxes. King Xerxes had a beautiful wife. She was said to be incredibly beautiful. Her name was Vashti. And King Xerxes was powerful. He had everything. And one day he called a feast. He had all his friends come to the feast. And they drank and drank and drank for days. And at the end of their big drinking party, he said, Hey, I want you to see my wife. Let her come out and let me parade her in front of you. And Queen Vashti said, No. 
I'm not coming out to visit you and your drunk friends. That's not where I'm going to be coming. And so long story short, the king kicks Queen Vashti out, puts her out on the street, and he and his top advisors have to figure out who's now going to be queen. Now, at the time... You would go through an incredible process if you're going to be considered to be queen. And though maybe you dated your spouse and, and you saw them across the room and you just thought that's the one. Or, or maybe you, in spite of what you saw across the room, decided to fall in love with them anyways. And you spent time with them. You got to know them. And this person stood out from the rest. And so you invested in this relationship. And then you decided that you were going to get married. You were decided you were going to live your lives together. And that's, an, that's usually the way it goes when you're choosing a spouse. Not so much when you're a king. And so what King Xerxes did was he held a competition. Kind of a bachelorette or a bachelor of Persia. And whenever you would apply for this position, which is essentially what you would do, they would go and find the most beautiful women from all across the land. And for one year, for a whole year, they would prepare these candidates. They would give them all kinds of these beauty treatments, and they would use all kinds of scented oils and lotions and get, you know, let them eat healthy food, help them to get in the best shape they could get, and learn all the mannerisms of how you would act if you were to become queen. And after a year would pass... And the king would make his selection. And one of those that were chosen was a young Jewish girl named Esther. For a year she went through this. And the search for a queen was not a short process. Long story short, Esther becomes the new queen. Now along the way, there is also a henchman. There is a number two to King Xerxes. And his name is, do you remember? Haman. Haman is a guy who loves power. He loves influence and he hates Jews. Specifically, he hates a man named Mordecai who just happened to be Esther's uncle who raised her as his own child. He hated Mordecai. And so he hatched a plan so that he could destroy all of the Jews in the area, which would include, of course, Esther as well. Haman wanted to destroy the Jews. Haman wanted to destroy Esther. Haman wanted to destroy all of Mordecai's people. We're going to pick up our story in Esther chapter 4, verse 8. What I want you to see in the verses that we're going to read is the challenge or the mission that Esther accepted or could have rejected. And then I want you to see as we go through with this, what are the consequences of her actions. Esther chapter 4, verse 8. Mordecai gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa. This is the... the I should have backed up before verse 8. This is the decree that Haman had that they would destroy all of the Jews. And so Mordecai gives this to Esther now that she is queen. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Caesar for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the kings hold out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now... 
This is where our story is. Mordecai has seen the decree that the Jews will be killed because they will not bow to the same gods. And so he cries out to Esther, you are now in a position of influence with the king who is the only one who can change these courses of events. And Esther's response was what any one of our responses would be, having been given a mission that seemed bigger than we were capable of. Mordecai, do you understand that if I go before the king and do what you want me to do, unless he finds favor with me, he will kill me, which is not out of the realm of possibility considering what he did to Queen Queen Vashti when she just wouldn't come out and see his friends. She knew what could happen. What we learn from this part of her story is that for many of us, your mission may seem insignificant i'm not sure esther at this point realized how serious things were it may be that you yourself do not realize how serious your mission in this world is if we're truly to believe what scripture tells us then we go back to the very beginning of the story and we we hear that god is at war with one of his angels This angel wants all of the power and prestige and the glory of God, and he loses that battle. His name was Lucifer, and he was cast down to the earth. From that moment, for all of creation, it was affected by this war because this enemy, this angel who has fought against God and lost, then begins to tell Adam and Eve, this is really not the life that you're supposed to be living, walking with God, experiencing paradise, being able to just experience the wonders of all that God is. And instead, he said, you need more. This is not enough. But if you'll go eat from this fruit, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then guess what? You will be like God yourself. You won't walk with him. You'll be just like him. And that began a chain of events that would change all of history, something that you and I struggle with today. And that is, there is a supernatural existence that is available for you to walk with the creator of the world, to experience goodness, wholeness, perfection, as scripture talks about it, which means completeness, so that you are not constantly looking for more to satisfy the holes within your heart. You have the opportunity to walk in power and in faith, to see beyond what's just in front of your face, to be able to see the world as it really is, not just in what we have grown up believing. As much as we believe it's crazy for certain contemporary musicians to claim that the world is flat, the truth is that all of humanity still is in the dark as much as that musician, believing that the world is just what's in front of our eyes. To believe that we don't have more that that we can experience, that we can't see God at work, that there aren't angels active around us. The Holy Spirit doesn't want to do something tremendous within our own hearts and our lives. But instead, you are just trying to get by day by day, going to work, coming home, trying to enjoy a few things along the way, trying to get people to like you, trying to be successful, trying to live in a better house, drive a better car, have a better salary, be able to trust in a better retirement, be able to just live life as if nothing else matters because you can insulate yourself into your own stuff. And by so doing, you find you're living an empty existence, something in you telling you there's more, and yet you don't know what that more is, so we listen to everyone else tell us what more is. 
which is more fame, more stuff, more freedom, more pleasure, more entertainment. And yet still, with all those things we try to fill the holes with, we find that the holes just get deeper. Because the world doesn't want you to know that there's something beyond what you only see with your eyes. And many of us believe that our own mission is insignificant because we only see ourselves with those eyes and not with the eyes of God. Your mission may seem insignificant. And in this case with Esther, your mission will have obstacles. One of the reasons that God constantly allows hardship within your life and for things to go wrong is to help you learn to deal with obstacles. Some of you have become very good at dealing with obstacles at work. Some of you have gotten very good at dealing with obstacles at home. But some of you are still struggling with the very obstacles that are blocking your heart from expanding and growing. You're going to have obstacles. Esther's obstacles were very clear. It was an army that would kill her. It was a king who would say, you know what, you're pretty and all, but you've only been around for a few days. I'm getting rid of you. Bring up the next runner-up. For Esther, those obstacles could have told her to stop her mission. For any one of us, our obstacles are very clear. We have obstacles of finances. God, I would go out on mission, but you've got to understand, I just don't have the finances to do that. Or I just don't have the time to be on mission. Or I just have all these other things I want to experience first. And those obstacles begin to overtake us and they begin to cloud and push out all of the calls that God has within our life. Your mission will have obstacles. Mordecai hears Esther's response and this is what he says to her in verse 12. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, Mordecai is demonstrating his faith that God will deliver the Jews. He knows the promises that he is going to protect his chosen people. He has seen it throughout history time and time again, and he knows that if a person rejects the mission that God was given them, that God will give that mission to someone else. But the person that had the opportunity to be involved will miss out. Mordecai tells her, you have to act. I don't know if you are cluing in on what your shadow mission is. Some of the homework I gave you this week was I want you to really focus on what is, what is your shadow mission. You all have one. You will know it when you stumble upon it. It will just, something in you will go, yes, that's me. That's where I default to. Your mission will have obstacles. Esther's mission would have staggering consequences one way or the other. If she accepted it, if she took the risk, if she stayed on mission, there would be consequences. And if she chose not to, there would also be consequences. This is the time that it would be nice to be able to see what is going to be the end result of my actions. How are things going to work out? Wouldn't it be great if that would work? We go to verse 15. Esther 
told the messenger to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susan. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. Remember that, Mordecai. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. As I shared with you a few weeks ago, our mission is very clear. It's not only to glorify God, it is not only to make Christ supreme in all things, but it is to let other people who are enslaved to this world and enslaved to sin to be able to be set free through the knowledge of the gospel and experiencing it in their own life. In this mission, we have not been told to go it alone. Good luck, Mark. Do the best you can. But instead, he has given us a community of people to do it together. And even greater than that community, within each member of that community that is truly Christ's disciple, they have been given the Holy Spirit that works within them and brings power. Just as Jesus promised his disciples before he would eventually ascend into heaven, he said, the Holy Spirit will give you power and you will be my witnesses. Remember, there's a difference in being a witness and an advocate. There's a difference in saying, oh, I believe these things. I think these things are true. I, I'm going to tell you what I have studied or learned or heard about or what someone has been inspirational to say to me. But a witness is someone who has seen it. They have experienced it. They have felt it. They know it's real. And they cannot act like anything otherwise. And so your mission is to be his witness. Are you a witness for Christ or are you an advocate for him? Do you believe he's a good teacher? Do you believe he is probably the Messiah? Do you believe that he's likely the son of God if what the Bible says is true? Do you hope that maybe if I trust in him, I will be able to go to heaven one day and all of this terrible life that I have to deal with from now and then, it'll be over and I'll eventually be happy. That's an advocate, And an advocate is wholly not persuasive. But a witness, a witness is I have seen the coming of the Messiah. I have seen him make a change in my life. I have seen him do the miraculous things in the world that no one else notices. And I have felt his presence within me. I am a witness and I got to tell somebody about what God's doing in me. I'm telling you when I... Grew up in the church. We had all kinds of evangelism programs. There's all kinds of evangelism programs you can still do. And most of the evangelism programs that you will go through, and if you just love evangelism programs, more power to you. What I have found, though, in the evangelism programs is it creates advocates, not witnesses. And so it tells us all the things we're supposed to say and all the questions we're supposed to ask and how we can overcome certain arguments or when people push back because they don't believe our arguments. But a witness supersedes an evangelism program because you go immediately to the heart of the matter. God changed me. I've experienced it. You can experience it too. And as we shared in our previous series, this is a noticeable change that you should be able to communicate within your life. The disciples demonstrated to us in this that whenever someone outside of Jerusalem accepted Christ, someone who did not know all of the teachings of the gospel, whenever Peter and John or the apostles would approach these new believers, they would ask them, 
this question which just cuts me to the quick whenever I look at our evangelism. They would ask them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Showing us that there's a difference in belief and experiencing the presence of God in our lives. There's a difference. But most of our evangelism programs are focused on belief. Whenever we focus on belief, we're advocates. When we focus on experience, we are witnesses. And that is what Jesus said we will be. And we will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out. Now, at this point in this story, we don't see the Holy Spirit working in Esther's life the way that we can experience the Holy Spirit in our lives today. However, we see something very similar in that even when we believe our mission is insignificant, when God's power becomes through us, it changes the world. Esther chapter 4, verse 15. I already read that. Your mission will require you to make a commitment from what we just read. For her, she knew the consequences. She made a commitment whether she dies or whether she lives, she was going to follow through. Chapter 5, verse 1. Esther is crafty. She's smart. She knows she can't just walk in there and demand that, her, that the king's right-hand man would be held accountable for these actions. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. You can imagine that for her, underneath those robes, she was sweating pretty much, pretty hard. I don't know what's going to happen. This may be the very last thing I do as she puts her robes on. These may be the very last clothes that I wear while I breathe. But if I don't go, we're all going to die. I've got to go. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was laid in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even the half even, even to the half of my kingdom. And, East, and Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, which is I th- always think is pretty pretty funny part of the story. She goes and the king literally says, Anything you want you can have, which just an occasional reader of Scripture would say, okay, Esther, now's your chance. In this right now. He said he'll give you whatever you want, even up to half the kingdom. Just say you want to be spared. You want your people spared. But what she knew about kings and kingdoms, about dealing with governments, is that they don't always do what they say they're going to do. I know that's hard to believe. In, in today's age, our government officials are always completely honest with us, and they always follow through on the things they're going to do. So it's, you just got to trust me that there have been a time when that's the way government officials didn't act. And they would make promises that they would not keep. She knew that the king would make one such promise to her. And so she decided she needed to spend some time with the king. And so she invited the king and Haman to come to a feast, which would have been a big deal at the time. The king gets really excited because, you know, he has just chosen Esther, and she is the most beautiful woman in the land. I love it. He calls Haman quickly. Come on, Haman, we're going to a party. He gets his wingman, and he heads in. 
king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman come to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And Esther answered, my wish and my request is if I have found favor in the sight of the king. And if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, Let the king and Haman come to the feast. I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. She invites him again to another feast. As I told you before, your mission may seem insignificant if you believe that you must do it on your own. If you don't expect the power of the Holy Spirit, which witnesses of Christ's power expect the power of the Holy Spirit to be manifested in them. They expect it because Scripture says it's going to happen, and they experience it. If you've not experienced that, I encourage you to pray that you would. As we've said before, there are many traditions that will give very specific indicators of what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and it usually involves the gift of tongues, which Scripture never tells us that is going to always be the case. For some it is, for some it isn't. But if you do not experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, that He has done things that you cannot explain, He has power has come through your life and made the world change around you in ways that you can't quite explain rationally. Once you experience that, you become a witness. Esther doesn't have the Holy Spirit in this way. That happens after Jesus comes. This is before Jesus comes. But yet God shows up in some incredible ways to give power to her mission. We're not going to read the next few verses, but if you do, you're going to find that the king has a hard time sleeping. Early in this story, and I believe in chapter 1, Mordecai alerts the king to an assassination plot. And he sends word to the king that says, you need to watch these guys. They're planning to assassinate you. They investigate. They find that Mordecai was right and that Mordecai becomes a hero because he saves the king. And then these would-be assassins are themselves killed so the king then at this point of the story as esther is planning how do i respond to this grave threat to our people has a dream he can't sleep he's tortured by it and so he calls his historians and he says hey i can't sleep read to me from the annals of the king which is pretty much interpreted hey i want you guys to just tell me about me tell me how great i am That's really what he wanted at that time. That was his sleeping pill. Y'all just come around, tell me how great I am. Tell me all the wonderful things I've done. And among the annals of the king that they would be reading, they just happened to come across the part that says Mordecai saved his life. And you cannot tell me that this is not God working in this situation to empower the mission. Could Esther possibly have foreseen this happening? Absolutely not. She could never in a million years have thought, you know, maybe the king will get tired and he won't be able to sleep and maybe he'll, they'll read the annals and they'll read about Mordecai. Never in her wildest dreams would she have imagined that would have happened, and yet it did. And so the king calls in Haman and he says, listen, I want to honor somebody. And Haman, being the narcissist that he is, says, oh, really? Believing it's him. And the king says, who or what should I do to really honor a person that I delight to honor? And Haman goes on and on and on about honoring him like a king. It's really kind of a fun story if you want to go back and read it later. 
If you ever hoped that karma was real and ever hoped someone would experience karma in a very real way in their own life, this is pretty much what it looks like biblically, although karma is not really a biblical principle. It certainly does look like it comes to bite Haman here. And so after Haman gives all the list of the wonderful things, the king reveals to him he's talking about Mordecai, the man he wants to kill and all of his people. So in this moment, in the king's mind, is the heroism, the honor of Mordecai. And so they go into the next feast. Esther chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, which is really quite a party, if you all think you are partiers, I mean, for days this went on. And the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus, which is also King Xerxes, as he's also called, said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. She gets the nerve up and she makes her request. And because of God's timing, the king is open to her request. Chapter 8, on that day, the king gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, But she wrote to destroy the Jews who were all in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So as we bring all this story together, what we find and what are the results, what are the consequences of her accepting the mission, being committed to the mission, overcoming the obstacles, being willing to accept what could have happened, Esther, Mordecai, and their house were saved. Number one, that happened. They were saved. But not just were they saved. But the Jews were saved. This is what God's plan was. This is what God's mission was for them. He wanted them to do this, and they did. 
It was by no accident that she became queen. It was by no accident that Mordecai saved the king from an assassination plot. It was no accident that the king wanted to hear from the annals and they read that particular one. It was no accident that that happened. Additionally, what's going to happen after this is that the king signs an order that no, no one ever would have signed before. And that was that if anyone tried to hurt the Jews, they could legally, even though the Jews were slaves, they could legally defend themselves. So the Jews were free to defend themselves for the first time, which means if someone else tried to kill them, they could kill the person trying to hurt them. What ends up happening is a great battle. And the, the Jews destroyed all those who wanted to kill them. If you read on through the Old Testament, you're going to find that this also sets up something, another incredibly well-known story in the Old Testament. Because Esther and King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, had a son who was called Artaxerxes, whose name was actually Darius I. Darius I was the son of Esther and King Xerxes. Now, why does that matter? Because there would come a man by the name of Nehemiah down the road who would say, I have had a vision and my people are hurting and I need to go back and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and I need to go back and I need to rebuild the temple. And there is a king that would give him an open opportunity to go back. Not only did he let him travel back and rebuild the stronghold of an enemy nation, but the king paid for every bit of it. That king's name was Darius, the son of Esther. And so the temple would not have been rebuilt had Esther not done what she had done. It's easy to look at those consequences and say, we must fulfill our mission. Let me share with you another story, one that may be more familiar with you. It comes from the New Testament, a shadow mission that was tempting, but was not followed through. Luke chapter 22, verse 39, talking about Jesus. Jesus was coming to the end of his life. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation, because he knew how great the temptation was. I believe part of that temptation, he was not just talking about sin, he was talking about abandoning the mission because they were coming to a crucial point in history. Pray that you may not enter into temptation, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And this is one of the, I'm so thankful this is in Scripture. He prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, which is what often happens whenever God has given you a mission. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. He had conquered his shadow mission. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation We know that Peter himself would, for a time, enter into his shadow mission. And he would deny Jesus three times. Now, the reason this is important is because Jesus is literally saying, God, if there's another way, let's do it. And yet he followed through with his mission. Because Jesus followed through, Jesus fulfilled his Father's will. 
Not only that, Jesus saved all who would repent and follow him. Jesus became our great high priest. And yet, he could have said no. But he didn't. Today, you're probably hearing stories about a man who has embarked on a shadow mission and now he's seeing the consequences of his actions. It's hard to miss what's going on with Harvey Weinstein. It's a terrible story of a man who had great talent, great charisma, a brilliant mind, the ability to accomplish anything he set his mind to, and yet he accepted the shadow mission of sexual pleasure at any cost. And so what we're seeing now, we're seeing two shadow missions, I believe, come to fruition. Ones that people have known about for decades. People have been screaming from the highest places they could scream of what an abuser that he was. For whatever reason, now is the time that his people have turned on him and, and now all of his indiscretions have come to light and now he's, he's out. I read yesterday that I believe it's the academy has kicked him out. Is it possible that they didn't know the shadow mission of Harvey Weinstein? It's not possible. It's not possible that nobody knew. They all knew. Everybody knew. They didn't just know. The population knew. They knew that these kinds of things happened in Hollywood. And so he traded all that he could have been with his power and his brilliance and his creativity. He traded all of that for the simple pleasure. And now he's losing everything within his life. And now we find all these people standing up and saying how terrible he is. People that never stood up before. See, we're all tempted to undergo a shadow mission. We're all tempted to move just off the mark. We're all tempted to just seek our own pleasure, our own stature, our own fame, our own success. We're all tempted in this way. And it's very easy to look at someone else when they abandon their mission and they accept a shadow mission. It's very easy to look at them and say, oh, look how terrible they are. And yet, even within our own lives, we struggle with our own shadow missions. Here's what I find interesting. This is a quote from John Ortberg from his book. When leaders have been seduced by a shadow mission, they are not likely to challenge anyone else's shadow mission as long as it serves or at least doesn't disturb their own agenda. This is why we don't hold each other accountable. This is why people constantly quote, judge not, don't judge me. Because we have embarked on a shadow mission and we want people to leave us alone to enjoy it. Because it makes us feel good. It makes us feel whole. It makes us feel like we're the center of the story. And that is what's happening in Hollywood today. They haven't messed with his shadow vision because it didn't mess with their own but once it started doing so they began speaking out they're appalled and shocked but this is how culture works they let you fall as far as you can fall and then once you are down they will applaud your fall and they will deny that they have any doing in it next week i want to share with you 
just one last week on shadow mission, and I want to really try to hammer some of the shadow missions that we accept, not in judgment, because we all struggle with this. But we need to be aware of the influences that are in our lives. We need to be aware of what's happening around us. This is what I want to leave you with today. I don't know what your mission is. I know that we all have a mission to be witnesses for Christ in the world, that Jesus demonstrated that, he modeled that, and he told us that's what we will spend our lives doing. If we're not doing that, then we are somehow, we are outside of Jesus' design for us. He said, this is what you will do if you're my followers. Not only are we going to be doing that, people will look at us, and though they will disagree with our stance on how to live life, they will be struck, Jesus says, by one inescapable fact, the crazy addictive love that followers have for one another. I don't know what your mission beyond that is. That's all of our missions. God will also give you missions along the way. I don't know what it is, but I know you probably feel insignificant and like God can't do something incredible or life-changing through you. And I would just say, you can't do that on your own. But when the Holy Spirit empowers you and the Holy Spirit is work with, with you, then all kinds of incredible things happen. You have a mission. Your mission will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have got to get away from this idea that we're just modifying our behavior and attending church. We've got to begin believing and living in such a way that the Holy Spirit is active and doing something amazing among us and in us. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. If that is not true, then nothing Jesus said is true. But if we believe that anything that Jesus says, that must also be true. And you must live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is where I struggle right now in my own life. There are certainly times I know the Holy Spirit has been active. And there are times that I, I, could, I would wager he's not doing anything. But if we're going to follow him, if we're going to live out this life, that this great life is a witness of Christ, then we've got to be experiencing this part. And it must change us as a community. And as a community, it must change those outside of these walls. Because the power of the Holy Spirit can't be contained. For those of you who are thinking, yeah, but I've read the whole book. And the whole book says, you know what? In the end times, people are going to fall away. In the end times, people aren't going to be interested in the end times, before Jesus returns, people are going to abandon the gospel and they're going to accept all these false gospels because it sounds good to them. We know that's what's going to happen. And what if that's happening? Even the Holy Spirit's not going to overcome that. And I would simply say, you know what? That is exactly right. That may be happening right now. But until Jesus returns, we don't live that way. We don't live as if, oh, well, we just give up. The world's too far gone. When we say that, you would never say that about somebody you loved. You would never say about somebody you love, they're too far gone, I give up on them. You'll say that about people you don't love. But you would never say that about someone that's important to you. And that's why Jesus said, you have to love everybody, not just the people that you like. you got to love your enemies too. Because once we love them, we're not content to let them go, even though we have no control over them. They may still never turn to Christ, but we don't stop 
trying to convince them of how wonderful Christ is. I'm going to leave you with a question I left you a couple of weeks ago, and that is this. What is God doing in your life right now? Not one time, a long time ago. What is God doing in your life right now that you feel compelled to tell the world about? You see, when God is doing something in your life that you feel compelled to tell the world about, that is when you become a witness instead of an advocate. If we put you all up here together and I say, you know what, you're terrible Christians if you're not sharing your faith, I may shame you into being an advocate. And to be quite honest, I grew up in a period where you were shamed if you weren't an advocate. It's worthless to shame people into advocacy because advocacy itself doesn't work. When God is working in your life, when you experience the power of the Holy Spirit, you've got to tell somebody. And when we do that, we become witnesses. And when witnesses witness about Jesus, lives are changed. It's, been, it's happened throughout the last 2,000 years, and it will happen again. I do believe that there are some things that have happened in our history that have modified the church, that has become very well accepted in the church. It has modified it from what Jesus anticipated. And so starting in two weeks, be Halloween weekend. It will be the weekend that we will be celebrating as a tradition the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I'm going to be sharing with you a lot of stuff you may not want to hear because I don't like hearing it. I'm going to share with you some history that we have forgotten because it's very convenient to forget. And I'm going to share with you what does it look like for us to be reformers today because we are in need of reformation today. Great historians have said, If you look back over the last 2,000 years of of church history, you will find that about every 500 years, the church looks back and realizes they've moved off course. They've accepted a shadow mission. And about every 500 years, the church begins to self-correct. I dare say we are past due for a self-correction back to what Jesus really intended. Is that to say that all we are as a church is completely false and, and, and is wrong? Absolutely not. There's so many wonderful things in the church. People have come to know Christ in, in a very real, life-changing way. There are some wonderful, incredible things in the church. But there's also some baggage we need to be honest about, we need to deal with. What I find is I talk to pastors all over the country, and I talk to people of all different faith traditions. They all feel it coming. It is coming. The Holy Spirit is moving, asking us, will we be involved? I hope you'll stay with us as we go through this. What is God doing in your life right now that you feel compelled to tell the world about? If you feel compelled to tell the world about it, no matter how insignificant you think it is, God intends to use it to change the world around you. So thankful for those of you who have accepted your mission. So thankful for the encouragement on the days that I want to accept my shadow mission. I just want to just do whatever's comfortable and easy. Thank you for your testimony. Thank you for your love, for the ways that you are, you are active around us. Would you pray with me? Father God, help us to follow you in all that we do. I pray that we would see, to see you not as a set of beliefs, but Father, we would see you as just the joy that you are in our lives. Lord, I pray for those in this room that you have a mission for their lives. I pray that you would 
be active and working in them. Father, I pray that you would help them to have confidence that you do not call us to insignificant missions, nor have you asked us to do this on our own, but instead we can be empowered by you. Father, show us Show us how we can be faithful witnesses. And let us be excited about what you're doing among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.